Hello, everybody. Welcome to the centenary century episode of Ask Abhijit. It's the 100th episode. Who would have imagined that we would reach episode 100? So thank you all for bringing us this far. So let me see who all is here. I can see SVS, Chiching, Vijay, Jay Dikshit, Lil Goju, Om Naik, Divish, Aditi, Tejas, Bluebird, Aviraj Singh, Rish, Yash Patel, Kuldeep, Sampriti Goswami, Chitra Ghosh, GCS, Amrinder, Vedansh, Abhinav, Cherry, Srihari, Patrick Jane, Akash Rathor, Abhi, Aradhya, Dishank, Jugal, Mohit, Greater India, Vidnay, Abhijit Mishra, Parth, Shivansh, Ganpat, Kapil, Om, Manav, Saurabh, Avinash, SRJKK, Purobi, Anthony, Dhruv, everybody. Great to see you all and thank you for being with me on this century episode. So first of all, uh, apologies for yesterday's technical problems. In yesterday's live stream, there was some technical issue. Everything was blurry and it was I was not looking at the live chat. So I had no idea. You guys were, I know you were trying to tell me something is wrong, but well, so apologies for that. I have uh, replaced the relevant hardware and hopefully uh, today it will be going fine. So yeah, apologies for that. And once again, thank you to all of thank you to everybody, all of you who have watched the episode, supported the channel in a variety of ways. Thank you for your comments. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your supports, for your support. I would like to thank all of those, all of you who have put in the timestamps. I can think of Akash, Harshit, Ramalakshmi. Thank you so much for doing that. It's uh, it's been very helpful, very useful to me and to all the viewers. So thank you so much for that. Thank you to those of you who have purchased memberships, those of you who have given donations, PayPal, UPI, whether it's one rupee, 10 rupee or whatever, it's all valuable. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, so who would have imagined in less than one year, 100 episodes, all live, all started on time. <laughs> so it's been, it's been quite a journey and uh, it would not have been possible without your viewership and your support. If uh, I would not have reached 10 episodes, let alone 100, if you had not been watching it and asking questions. If you had not been watching it, I would have gone and done something else. Right? So it's all thanks to you. So once again, thank you very much. I really appreciate everything. 
you know what they say that if somebody uh, gives you 3 seconds of their time it's a privilege so for me i've got so much of your viewership i am i am truly blessed thank you very much to all of you right so with that said i'm going to i've taken a whole lot of questions and hopefully i can answer as many of them as possible let's start with the question number 1 what is question number 1 let's see here we go oh okay all right wow 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 okay okay i get it <laughs> okay okay right right okay i get it this is a question that i've been this is a demand a request that has been uh, i have been getting every day every week every month so yes it is time for me to make an announcement about this so i have made many such announce i mean many such uh, statements in the past that i will create course i will create what uh, documentaries I'll, i'll write books the thing is if you have objectives if you have goals they are simply dreams unless you put a time limit a deadline on them so uh, let me put a deadline on the book now so my first episode of ask abhijit released uh, went live on the 2nd of june 2021 so on the 2nd of june this year in a month's time i am going to release a book a book that will be a tightly focused uh, uh, overview big picture overview of the entirety of indian history it will cover the last 70000 years of indian history and give you the one very clear specific result that it will give you a proper chronological account of what happened in india and answer the big questions of who are the indians what is their history what is their origin what is their culture civilization what are the great achievements uh, whatever misfortunes befell the indian people and so on and so forth all of that in one book so this is going to be an ebook initially and it's going to be a tightly focused book it's not going to be a 500 page book it's going to be a quick brisk read it's going to be an ebook i'm going to release it on amazon kindle you can read it on your phone tablet computer wherever eventually i will release it as a paper book as a as a yeah as a physical book you know the entire editorial process is a long process there are reviews and people give you recommendations they ask you to change things it's tedious time consuming there is a good purpose for it obviously but uh, i will release it first as an ebook and here's the deal many of you many of us don't like reading books so along with the ebook i will also release in parallel a video course yeah tightly focused 2 3 hour video course a big picture overview of the entirety of indian history the past 70000 years of indian history it will not be on youtube it will be on a different platform it will be a paid course now some of you will say why is it a paid course i said that uh, con- uh, information sh- uh, knowledge should always be free it's going to be a course that will cover everything i've already covered on this channel all the information is already available on this channel there are hundreds of videos i've answered thousands of questions I've, there are hundreds of videos hundreds of hours of of uh, watch time on my channel you can get all the information for free i'm going to just put it together record it again put it together into a 2 3 hour course video course and i'm going to place it on a different platform which i will announce when the time is right the deadline is the 2nd of june this year um it gives me just a month to do all this so that's a very tight deadline but yeah unless you put a deadline you're not going to achieve anything right so uh, this is going to be a paid course and a paid ebook obviously it's not going to cost 10000 rupees or even 1000 rupees the course i will price it at the pi- price point of a pizza right and there are two reasons why i'll make it a paid course first of all there is the psychological thing that if you get something for free you don't value it you don't you don't use it it's something that everybody has 
it's just a psychological thing. You may get the best and most valuable information and knowledge, but if you get it for free, you don't value it. But if you have paid for it, even a little bit of money, then you're going to make sure that you're going to study it properly. So that's number one. And secondly, uh, by putting a small price on the course, I will make sure that the wrong people, the wrong audience stays away. As you know, on this channel, there are lots of people who come just to pass negative comments, to, to place negative comments and to argue and so on and so forth. So if you put a price on the course, those people will stay away, right? So that's the, that's the thing. So the target is the 2nd of June. So let's uh, wish me luck. And uh, I, uh, I have some engagements this month. I have some traveling to do, some public appearances and all, but I'm going to try my best to reach, to, to complete this task by the 2nd of June. So if things go well, and I'm sure they will, then by the 2nd of June, you will have an ebook and you will have a course. You can choose whichever. So that's the announcement, and that's the answer to this question. Now there's a deadline and a, and a time limit on this thing. Okay, next question. Animish and Space Edge Pro. Animish says, from a reluctant YouTuber to becoming a regular one, what, how has your YouTube journey been? You mentioned you were an introvert. Was it not for sports? You would have spent most of your time reading books. What are your thoughts on building such a big social media connection? You are one of the most sought-after YouTubers growing uh, every day. And the second one is... Um, uh, compared to Abhijit in Ask Abhijit episode 1, what have you learned in this journey of yours from episode 1 to episode 100 about us, your community? I have learned a lot. I have learned a lot about the community, about the youngsters of India. The, the interesting thing is that um, uh, if I look at my Google Analytics for my YouTube channel, it shows me that the majority of my audience is, is less than 24 years old, 24 or below. So somehow I have been able to connect with youngsters. I mean, I'm not a youngster. I'm in my 40s, right? I've got gray hair, as you can see. But the connection I have accomplished is with kids, with youngsters, which is fantastic. I could not could not have asked for anything better. So I have, over the past 100 episodes, learned a great deal about the hopes, desires, aspirations, ambitions, problems, etc., that youngsters in India today have. I know what they seek. I know what sort of information and knowledge they seek. I know what their aspirations are. They want to see India great, prosperous, and they want to have a great, prosperous future. They want to. They all want to contribute something to the progress of the country. They are very interested in geopolitics, in history, some of them in science as well. Uh, there are lots of problems as well. I get uh, lots of questions about uh, resolving various problems, which I may not be the best expert at, you know. But yeah, I so I have learned a lot about people. I, I've realized that people want to be heard. Everybody really wants to be heard and everybody uh, wants to do something and wants to learn something. There is a genuine desire for learning, but not for the education system. The education system kills off everyone's desire for learning. But when information is presented in a certain way, maybe the way I present it here, people are interested in it and people want to know more. I get thousands of questions every week and I'm able to answer only a few of them. I try to uh, you know, select the ones that represent everyone's questions the best. So I have learned a lot over this time. It's been a great experience, a great learning experience. I have understood the world better, the country better. And for me also, I've understood myself better. It's been a growing experience. I mean, I have realized that I personally am capable of a certain amount of consistency, hard work. I always, uh, unless I was once or twice ill, like genuinely ill, I have ensured that I was always, I never missed an episode. I always came up on time. And I've uh, realized the things, a few things about, about myself, like, such as, 
there is a certain comfort zone that I have now reached on this channel. I am uh, very comfortable doing this Q&A session, this Q&A thing in format and all that. And I have not quite gone into the other directions that I would have wanted to. So I need to break free from this comfort zone and do something different. So these, it's, a, it's a growing process, a learning process. There's a lot to learn. It's, a, it's The journey has actually just begun. It's not even one year. So I've learned a lot and it's all thanks to you. Without your uh, viewership, without, without your support, without, without your engagement, I would have learned none of these things and I would not have been able to offer anything to any of you. So it's all thanks to the audience, to all of you that this has been possible. So thank you very much. Uh, Tech Intern says, do you prepare for the answer before making any video? <laughs> you know, I get these, uh, I mean, what I do is typically a couple of days, one or two days before the live uh, live stream uh, happens, this Q&A live stream, Ask Abhijit live stream, one or two days before that, I select as many questions as I can, I, which I think will be useful and valuable to the broadest possible audience. And then I just put them aside or, or the questions should be like questions that interest me as well. So I pick a whole bunch of questions, maybe 50 or so questions, and I and I select those. And you know, if I were to go through every question and prepare answers for each question, I would I would do nothing else in my life. So I just pick a bunch of questions that I find interesting, and I'm I'm sure that the audience will gain some value and some benefit from them. And then I just come here and, and answer them live, as if I'm having a conversation with somebody. I never prepare for prepare the answers. Sometimes I keep the maps uh, thing open and I show some things on maps and all that. But, you know, I if I were to start preparing every answer beforehand, I would do nothing else in my life and I would not be able to do anything else. So, no, I don't prepare any answers. It's all extempore. It's all live here on the spot. Whatever comes to my mind, I say it. And that's that's how I do it. Tejo says, do you have any degree in history or are you just a history enthusiast? Is it possible to get mastery in a subject by simply by self-study or without getting a degree? You know what? I don't have any degree in history. All of you are learning history from a guy who doesn't have a history degree. <laughs> oh my God. How terrible is that? So that's what it is. I don't have any degree in history. None whatsoever. Zero. Zero degrees in history. Am I a history enthusiast? Hell no. I am deadly serious about history. I've been studying history all my life. I'm still studying it. So I am not a history enthusiast. I am deadly serious about history. I am not an expert in history. I am a student of history. And I am sharing whatever I'm learning. That's what I'm doing. If you start believing that I'm an expert in whatever, you're never going to grow past that point. point. If you think I know everything now, I'm an expert, that's it. It's the end of your growth. So don't ever have that attitude that I'm an expert at something. I do not consider myself an expert at anything. I am a student. I'm going to be a lifelong student. I'm going to keep learning. And you know what? History is such that there's always something new to learn. There's so much research happening in archaeology, in in uh, in a whole different, uh, in a whole entire bouquet of sciences uh, that will give you new information, new insights into history. What you thought was true, it may turn out to be false based on new information, new research. So there's always something new to learn every day, every week, every month, every year. It's a field that keeps evolving. We are learning so much more about our past because of scientific advances. So uh, you got to keep learning and you always need to have an open mind. Like I've, I've shared my, my story about uh, how I used to believe in the Aryan invasion myth and based on my actual study of the actual evidence, the entire perspective was changed and I was 
I was fine with that. I my entire understanding and perspective of of our history took a complete 360 degree 180 degree turn, and that did not uh, create any cognitive dissonance or anything or anything in me. So uh, so I'm a learner. I'm not an enthusiast. I'm not an, not an expert. I'm learning and I'm sharing whatever I learn. Is it possible to get mastery in a subject by just by self study without getting a degree? Let's say you're learning pottery, how to make pots. Do you get degrees in pottery? No, you learn how to make great pots to, to, to become an expert at pottery by practicing every single day, hours every day. That's how you gain mastery in it. There is no degree in pottery. Similarly, whether it comes to any subject, any field, whether it's economics or physics or mathematics or history, you can get a significant amount of proficiency without ever, without, without ever uh, trying to earn a degree. So it is possible to get, gain mastery in a subject through pure self-study, nothing else. I mean, whatever I've learned is through self-study. I have gone to school, college, university, etc. I have degrees in whatever. I did not learn a single thing ever in the classroom. Whatever I learned was through self-study. After I left classroom, went back home, and I spent a few hours studying things on my own from whatever books I found valuable and useful. So everything I've learned in any field has been through self-study. Those degrees, whatever I have, they, they actually gave me just a paper, a degree. That's it. Nothing else. So that's what I would say to all of you. Uh, Self-study is the best way to study. I mean, depending on the person. For me, it's, that's the way it works. For some people, you may need a teacher to teach you. So it depends on you, you what your aptitude is, what kind of person you are. But for me, self-study is what has always worked. Animish says, ever since I have started listening to your thoughts, my entire identity has been shaken. On one hand, I've become immensely confident in the strong nationalist, which is great and I love it. But on the other hand, it has made me skeptical about everything I consume for knowledge. This is causing a great deal of turbulence and I no longer able, I'm no longer able to enjoy the things I used to before. Whether it's watching movies or reading books or news that belong to the West, I know I should find balance. I'm feeling biased. Is this a phase that will pass? Uh, as I gather more knowledge, any recommendations? You know, life is a uh, is a learning experience, and the truth is that the media has been telling you what to think. It's not like it's something that's happened in the past five or ten years. The media has always been lying to you. The media has always been owned by somebody or the other. Every see the news is an industry. Industry means there is money in it. It's it's a money-making industry. So there are people who own news organizations. When somebody owns a news organization, they're going to they're make sure that the news that comes out of that organization has a certain bias that reflects their worldview and their ideology and their perspectives. That's always going to be that way. And media is so powerful that governments control it surreptitiously. Like the BBC is the propaganda arm of the UK government, CNN, New York Times, New Yorker, Washington Post, etc. are the propaganda arms of the US government and so on and so forth. The thing is, we don't have any propaganda arm. We are not able to promote our propaganda. Why, why should we not? So we don't have that. But you know, when this curtain that you that was over your eyes is removed, then it kind of shakes you up the first time it happens. It's like uh, if you see the, if you've seen the movie The Matrix. It's like you take the red pill and then you see the real world in all its ugliness, but it is the truth. So I would say that, yeah, it's uh, it can cause some turbulence when everything you've believed all these years is now revealed to be false. You've taken the red pill, you know, like they say, and uh, now you see the world and it's not as pretty as you thought or imagined it was. 
that's a passing phase eventually you get used to it and you know i'll i would take the truth a hundred times out of hundred over beautiful lies and yeah even i used to enjoy watching certain movies that i kind of don't enjoy anymore i used to enjoy watching certain sometimes some bollywood movies i don't want to watch them anymore because now i know the truth about bollywood and the kind of propaganda they are spewing and the kind of uh, um distortions about india they are constantly engaging in for decades so that's one example the all the news that comes from the west is you simply can't trust it all the books that are authored by western authors you have to be very careful about what you believe when you read the books you should read the books but you should always take everything with a few grains of salt so that's how it is so i went through that uh, i've been going through that for the past 20 or so years uh, i am glad you are going through it it will cause some turbulence be equanimous be calm and always search for the truth so it's a passing phase you will get used to it well, my recommendations are consume as much knowledge as you can from all possible sources and then use your judgment to understand what is right and what is actually propaganda it's it's a skill that evolves over time it's a skill that you acquire and refine over time so give it time it will happen harsh says your views on atlantic city is it real or not it's real i i've been there i was in atlantic city it's 22 now right i was in atlantic city about two decades ago the first time it's very much real and i remember visiting the trump taj mahal casino because i wanted to see what a casino looks like so atlantic city is indeed real i have been there personally it's not a myth atlantis is something we still don't know about so there is this uh, old greek story of the city called atlantis that supposedly sank in the ocean and uh, it disappeared because of a tectonic event earthquake or something so there the the western countries have been the western world has been looking for the city of atlantis for for centuries they even named an entire ocean after the city the atlantic ocean but they have never found atlantis there there's only one city i can think of a major city prosperous city very well governed city that was destroyed overnight in a couple of hours in a massive tectonic event an earthquake that is the city of dwarka and it was uh, considered to be a myth by indian historians for decades until unfortunately they actually found the ruins of the city exactly where the so called myth said it would be so the only city that matches the description of the greek atlantis is the indian city of dwarka which is like maybe 8 10000 years old maybe even older it's a massive big city with big walls and all that it's there under the ocean it's still there hopefully they're not destroying it so so that's about atlantis and also about atlantic city these are two different things okay karthik says can you please tell us about the law of casualty i think you mean causality so what is causality it's cause and effect from the time of the big bang everything that has happened after the big bang has been connected to the initial moments after the big bang through well mathematics differential equations the entire universe can be governed you can if you if you know all the parameters you could represent it by a single wave function a single differential equation so cause and effect every effect has a certain cause that causes it the world we live in today it is the result of decisions taken by our predecessors our ancestors centuries ago even thousands of years ago 
if a bunch of people 70000 or so years ago did not decide to cross the bab al mandeb strait which is today called the bab al mandeb strait in the red sea and uh, cross out of africa into asia then we would not be alive here today so for every effect there is a cause it's a causal chain cause and effect cause and effect cause and effect that's that's the law of causality right and the study of history is the study of cause and effect causality the causal chain and that's what people don't teach you your teachers will not teach you that because they are themselves don't understand that your textbooks will not tell you that the study of history is the study of cause and effect causality so it's not a law as such it's just just the understanding that for everything that happens there is a cause for it if you can identify the cause then you can understand why things happen and you can actually start predicting what may happen in the future to a reasonable amount of uh, accuracy so that is causality and uh, you know there is uh, there are applications for this in geopolitics in in business in finance in economics and many other fields predictive analytics so it's possible today because of a uh, supercomputers of of data mining all of that you can feed a massive amount of data into a machine learning algorithm into a neural network and that neural network is going to make predictions for you based on how you train it and how uh, how all encompassing and broad and unbiased your data set is and so on so that again is on the on the basis of causality cause and effect so that is what causality is the cause and effect chain Asmita says it's great to be part of this amazing journey thank you thank you Asmita here's my question how should a leader respond to criticism many dictators are despised for their brutal ways of dealing with it there are also many leaders who are perceived as weak for not having a response or a meek one what is the best way of dealing with criticism for a leader uh please also answer this one more tiny question have you given a thought about writing science fiction okay let's talk about uh, leadership and criticism how should a leader respond to criticism it depends on the leader a good leader will put the national uh, let's talk about national leaders we can talk about all kinds of leaders even if you are a member of a family you are in a way a leader you can assume a leadership role in a small five person family or even a three person family so leadership is, uh, exists at multiple levels now let's talk about a higher level just to make things clear it applies everywhere so let's talk about nations and national leaders so if you are a leader of a nation hopefully the uh, highest uh, objective for you as a national leader is to pursue and further and protect and promote your national interest that should be the only objective of a leader nothing else your entire existence should revolve around promoting furthering protecting the national interest the long term national interest right that is the in the concise definition of leadership and national interest so if you are a leader and your the the only objective you serve or follow is to promote the national interest and then if somebody criticizes you then the only question you have to ask yourself as a leader is is this criticism valid am i doing something wrong am i harming my nation's interest so you should take criticism seriously as a leader and you should analyze it properly and if it is valid you should do some kind of course correction based on what insight you have acquired from the criticism but unfortunately there are many so called leaders who don't uh value the nation's interest look at what's happening in sri lanka there's a family that that's running the country and they they are right now busy trying to save their skin and try to stay in power 
the country be damned so there are there are leaders like that those are not real leaders a leader is someone who serves the country when you have a person in a, in a so called leadership position but they are serving their own family they are not real leaders so you cannot consider such people to be leaders i'm just giving an example there are lots of other examples like that uh, i'm sure you can think of many of those so a, a genuine leader a true leader will take criticism very seriously and introspect based on the criticism first analyze whether the criticism is valid it is genuine or not if the criticism is valid then they have to understand where they are going wrong based on the feedback they have received and they should make the appropriate course correction so that is the correct way for a leader to respond to criticism don't take it personally the nation is is above the leader the leader is merely a servant so if the service there is something wrong with the service they need to do course correction even if it proves that they were doing something wrong so be it serve the nation forget about how you look so that is how a true leader would should respond to criticism have i given thought to writing science fiction not really i am a big fan of science fiction i have never thought about writing fiction i mean once or twice i may have written some little short story or something obviously never published but yeah nothing never seriously thought about writing fiction or science fiction maybe someday when i have a lot of time in the future distant future i may think of doing that um, maybe not yet maybe not yet Okay, Himalayan Onka says, "I am currently reading your recommended book, Coup d'État, by Edward Luthwak, which mentions one of the preconditions for coup is economic backwardness. Whereas you and Dr. Luthwak in your podcast said a coup is possible in China, which is a country with the second highest GDP. So, how is a coup possible in China? Then, please explain. Excellent question. I love it. So, yes, uh, that's what the book mentions. That one of the preconditions for a coup is economic." backwardness and i had this discussion with dr luthwak in my podcast it's available for you to watch brilliant podcast brilliant conversation brilliant uh, guest so so we discussed the possibility of a coup in china and he went into some detail or uh, detail about how uh, a coup would be a hypothetical coup in china would take place so yes he did, did agree that a coup is possible in china but not in india right so one of the conditions is economic backwardness now you're saying that uh, and you're rightly saying china is the country with the second highest gdp in the world so how is a coup possible then because one of the conditions is economic backwardness well we're talking about the condition of the people not the condition of the country china has a population of 1.4 billion people if you take the overall gdp per the annual gdp you divide it by the number of people then you then you get the per capita gdp it's not very high it's not very high right so you can have a gdp of a bazillion dollars but if your population is a gazillion then bazillion divided by gazillion is the actual uh, uh, indicator of economic progress or backwardness if your per capita gdp is like 2000 dollars per year that's economic backwardness in the case of china it's no longer that much it's around 10000 or so roughly give or take so it's not entirely economic backward but it's not economically uh prosperous the people are not prosperous yet and we don't know uh, the actual conditions in such china because even if you do this calculation of per capita gdp you fail to take into account the 
possible inequality in society. For instance, in a country like China, which is a dictatorship, a one-party dictatorship, there will be a significant amount of economic inequality. A small percent of the, of the population will hold most of the money of the country or wealth of the country. So let's let's take the case of the U.S. In the U.S., approximately 2% of the population has more, has more than 60-70% or so of the entire country's wealth. These oligarchs, they call them billionaires in the U.S. When it's another, in another country, they call them oligarchs. So these American oligarchs, they hold, they are in possession of the majority of the country's wealth. There is this massive inequality, wealth inequality in the U.S. And there are many people who survive by doing two, three jobs a day. They sleep four hours a day and the rest of the time they're working just to put food on the table for the families. So I expect in China the situation may be similar or even worse because the Chinese have tried to copy the American model of capitalism. So because of these facts, and, and you know, in China, these things are hidden. What you see in the media is the nice, nice version of China. What they want you to believe, they don't show you what they don't want you to see. There's so much about China that is hidden. You only see the official version on Twitter or wherever, wherever their social media accounts are. And it's it's strange that Twitter allows the Chinese to, to, to pass on this misinformation at an industrial scale. Right? So what you see about China is not necessarily the, the truth about China. They are showing China as a beautiful, heavenly nation full of forests and orchards, orchards and, and glimmer, glimmering, glittering cities and wealth and all that. There's a whole different part of China that they're not showing you, right? So there, that's the reason why a coup is very much possible in China. The Communist Party's Politburo and the, the top leadership will hold much of the country's wealth. Uh, there are many billionaires in China, but you know, every two or three weeks, a billionaire disappears in China for whatever reason. So there's a whole lot that is swept under the carpet and hidden away from you. There are lots of systemic and other problems in China. And that is the reason why, despite the high GDP of the country, and despite the reasonably okay per capita GDP, the truths may be something very different. And most likely is very different. There's a great deal of poverty even now in China. They claim they have eliminated extreme poverty and all that. They also claim that there was no COVID in China for two years. Yeah? Do you believe that? So don't trust everything that you see. So that's why a coup is very much possible in China. And there are two other conditions as well, which I'm sure you have read about. If you all don't know about it, check out the book. There are three preconditions for a coup. And in China, all three are satisfied. And that's why it's a country that is that is likely to have a coup in the future. At least, you know, as long as the Communist Party is in power. Okay, uh, RTK says you put low, you put a lot of load on your brain by doing multiple heavy tasks. Does it impact your mental health? Do you take a break from all of this, is, or is it something about mental fitness or toughness? If it is so, would you like to give some tips about mental fitness? I don't put heavy loads on my brain. I don't do multiple heavy tasks. I know the limitations of this brain. My, I have a small, moderate brain. It can't do heavy tasks. It simply cannot do multiple tasks. I, this My brain is incapable of multitasking. I only do one thing at a time. That's what I do. So uh, I never overtax or overload my brain. I mean, uh, there is this myth 
in the corporate world about multitasking a good manager or a good leader in the corporate world is somebody who can do five things at the same time that's a myth simply can't be done if somebody does it well good on them i can't do it so so i am very clear about where i am my brain can't do such things i can only do focus on one thing at a time so that's how i do things uh, so yeah that's that's how i've always been i've never had any mental health issues i'm not saying when mental health issues don't exist these days among the newer generations among gen z, gen z etc there is this it's there seems to be this epidemic of mental health issues and all that which is unfortunate and it's almost like uh, if you don't have mental health issues then you're abnormal that's how it become because of the media and whatever so everybody i don't know lots of people lots of kids seem to have mental health issues depression or whatever it is which is unfortunate me i have never had any mental health issues maybe i maybe i'm lucky or whatever so yeah uh, whatever i do it does not ever impact my mental health do i take a break from things sometimes i do i sometimes i you know in every single day um you have 24 hours in a day maybe you sleep 8 hours a day which, which and you're left with 16 so you're going to spend some time maybe 7 8 hours or whatever works for you doing whatever work you're doing whatever is important to you the work serious part which you have to focus on but you also have to take some time out in the day maybe 3 4 hours or whatever works for you when you're doing nothing when you are supposedly wasting time because the brain needs that too doing activities in which you're not do, not creating anything not not producing anything hanging out with friends watching a movie or playing music or going to the gym or swimming or whatever or be with your family doing things that are supposedly non productive but the mind needs that that keeps the balance in the mind so for some people you may need 4 hours of that some people may need 1 hour of that so it depends on everybody so you need to have a balanced life don't skimp out on sleep that will mess up your mind for sure um so that's what i can say that's the tips i would say, i would give about mental fitness keep things simple don't try to achieve 15 different things at the same time uh so that's how we should do things uh take breaks yes you should take breaks you should have a certain time in every single day when you're doing nothing or doing something that you enjoy listening to music watching movies hanging out with friends whatever it is so i have certain things that i like once in a while i like to go out and travel somewhere get in a, get on an airplane go somewhere i enjoy traveling so that's something i like to do once in a while that's again starting now because this the past two years are behind us now so you know you should always take a break once in a while there should be a daily break and maybe a monthly or quarterly break or whatever so you, you should not always be in the same routine because routine kind of dulls the mind do things that are different from time to time so that's what i would say and don't take life too seriously sometimes things don't work out sometimes things don't work out for a long time hey that's life stuff happens just move on <clears throat> akash says generally speaking the followers of sanatan dharma are more tolerant compared to religious faiths even in india there are where there's a majority of uh, sanatanis in even for the namesake there are hardly any uproars against selective criticism and abuse of vedic literature on social media targeting our festivals even our aradhya their naam roop gun leela etc if somebody makes fun of guru granth sahib or quran even in foreign countries they will be punished probably killed no such anger is seen in us the, my, my question is does it serve us or is it going against us in the current times well there is something that uh, that hindus need to think about uh, i obviously am against any form of violence 
so the thing is in india there is a selective application of laws india unfortunately is the most hindu phobic country in the world i say this without a hint of irony it is true the constitution is 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 foreign in nature there are clauses in the constitution that are unequal that target hinduism adversely the policies of the government are hindu phobic anti hindu whether it's education policy whether it is the the hijacking of hindu temples and stealing of the wealth and so on and so forth so first of all hindus should realize that india is the most hindu phobic country in the world hindus are treated like second class or third class citizens hindus have more equal equality in western countries than in india you have the same rights as a hindu as in other countries like in the us or in, in europe as people of other religions in india you don't so india is the most hindu phobic country in the world now uh, most people don't care in india because they over the past few decades the education system is completely upper deracinated people so they feel no connection to their to their culture as religious roots so they don't care if people abuse hinduism and so on so what i would say is this if it continues it's going to end up uh, destroying hinduism hinduism will no longer exist in 50 or 100 years you know it will be a very minor fringe faith so that's eventually what will happen if the country continues on its current path so i obviously would say that i am totally against any form of violence uh whatever punishments should be given have to be done have to be given as per the law now the law itself is unequal so you know things need to change i am not asking for hinduism to become the supremacist religion in the country or the primary religion in the country every religion every faith every culture that is inside india should have a level playing field that's what i'm saying so uh, yeah the way things are going hinduism will go extinct in 50 to 100 years more or less it will become irrelevant and a fringe thing the way things are currently going so hopefully you should be aware of this and and hopefully uh things should change how does it, how do things change it will change because of the right leadership if we get the right leadership i'm not saying i'm not saying we have the wrong leadership right now right now things are such that certain things cannot be done eventually in the future we will have equality in the country and every citizen will have the same rights which they don't have today so i am not asking for more rights for group x or group y i am saying everybody should have the same rights i think nobody should be should have have any objection to that Shankarjit says is it correct that, that the Mughals or the Persians are not actually the founders of biryani according to some articles sanskrit texts like uh, pak darpanam mentions that anishad the king in nala who when he left his own kingdom and became a cook in ayodhya king rituparna's kitchen was the fun was the one who invented what we now call biryani what is the truth okay so if you study your history textbooks if you listen to your eminent historians if you watch if you listen to if you consume media and all that what you will be told is that um, biryani is one of the great gifts that the, the turks they are called mughals right in our, in our textbooks but they are turks so the turks gave india a great gift this wonderful flavorful dish called biryani it is a meat dish but you hindus eat it in a vegetarian way but still you should thank the mughals the turks for that that's what they tell you that's what that's what the, you are taught and most of us believe that right so simple question where did the turks come from the so called mughals where did they come from they came 
from Central Asia. Would you like to see what Central Asia is? Let me show you because the map will help to understand. So this here is India. I know you can recognize India. So this entire place, if you can see my mouse pointer, I'm hoping that you can see it. So this is Central Asia, north of the Himalayas. All of this is Central Asia. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and so on and so forth. All of that is Central Asia. Uh, east of the, essentially north and east of the Caspian Sea. That is Central Asia. So the Turks came from this overall region. They were also present for the north in Siberia and so on. So the Turks, who are now known as the Mughals, they came from that region. Central Asia. A simple question. Biryani. What is the major ingredient in biryani? It's rice. Does rice grow in Central Asia? Answer me that question. You don't know it? Google it. Find out for yourself. Homework. Does rice grow in Central Asia? Let me give you the answer. Rice doesn't grow anywhere in Central Asia. There is no rice cultivation anywhere in Central Asia. So if rice does not grow in Central Asia, if there is no rice cultivation in Central Asia, how did a rice dish become the dish of the Turks? How did they invent a dish based on a, a staple food that doesn't even grow there? Where does rice grow? Rice grows in places where there's a lot of water, lots of rainfall. India and parts of China and parts of Southeast Asia, etc. That's where rice is a staple crop and a st staple food grain. Right? So how can biryani be a Central Asian dish, a Turkic dish? They lived there for thousands of years without any rice. Even if they would get rice from somewhere else, possibly it would be something like a luxury for them. That simply cannot become a national dish of the Turks. And about Persia, well, even in Persia, rice doesn't grow there. The favorite rice of the Persian people, of our Persian brethren and sisterin, is long-grained basmati rice. They import it from India. Maybe some of it from Pakistan or whatever. So the Persians love rice. They get it from India. They love basmati. So if you look at these simple facts, it becomes very clear that, that biryani or, or pulao or whatever rice dish cannot, any of these rice dishes, none of these rice dishes could have emerged out of Central Asia simply because rice doesn't grow there. So that itself totally invalidates the argument that these invaders, they enriched us culturally by bringing in this rice dish. We enriched them culturally. They acquired these dishes these flavors, these spices, everything from us, right? So I'm not aware of these, uh, whatever uh, these uh, points that you've mentioned, the Sanskrit text and Nishada, King Anala and all that. I'm not aware of that. But it's simple logic that biryani could not have emerged out of Central Asia. It's an Indian dish. And of course, uh, there must be lots of evidence from old uh, cookbooks, etc. about various rice dishes that existed in ancient India. Obviously, they would have existed. There is evidence of rice cultivation that goes back 10,000 years before today in India. So rice has always been part of India. So obviously, Indians 10,000 years ago would have been eating rice dishes. Cuisine has always been part of our life. So that should set the matter to rest. These lies need to be exposed. Our historians, our so-called eminent historians have been lying to all of you and all of us. They are liars. Exposed. Debunked.
Okay, radio says, are all Indian, did all Indian dinosaurs go extinct during the formation of the Deccan traps? Or did they go extinct because of the events caused by the Chikulub event? Okay, what is the context to what uh, the question is? So let's go back to the map. Where's the map? Shall we make it larger? Here we are. So the question is about the Deccan traps and the Chikulub event. So as I hope we all know, the Indian subcontinent, the Indian landmass was once part of Africa. It was once attached to Africa, the eastern part of Africa, right? So it detached because of uh, tectonic activity about 100 million or so years before today. The island of Madagascar also detached. It it, it was left behind here. And the Indian landmass traveled all across the Indian Ocean and eventually slammed into Eurasia. And that is the event that led to the formation of the highest mountain, the tallest mountain range in the world, the Himalayas. So, when India was in the Indian Ocean, when the Indian subcontinent was in the Indian Ocean, when it was in this region here, the Réunion Island region, about 60-70 million years before today, about 65 or so million years before today, the Indian subcontinent was in this region, the Réunion region. And there is a volcanic hotspot there. It's called the Réunion hotspot. So at that time, there was this massive super volcanic activity going on in the Deccan Plains, the Deccan Plateau. And you still see evidence of that in the Deccan Plateau. It's called the Deccan Traps, these bad lands in Maharashtra and Western India, even Central India and all that. Enormous region that was full of this super volcanism. And this super volcanism, this super volcanic activity spewed immense amounts of fumes, smoke, dust, clouds, ash, etc. into the Earth's atmosphere. This happened about between 70 and 60 million years before today, approximately 67, 66, 65 million years before today. So that is a Deccan traps volcanism. And at the same time, there was this massive extraterrestrial impact onto the earth. So if we go to Mexico's Yucatan province, Yucatan Peninsula, and if you go to this region here, you will find a town called Chicxulub. It's not a town, it's a village. Chicxulub. This is the place. So it's a small village today, Chicxulub, and it happens to be the epicenter of an ancient uh, extraterrestrial impact event that happened 66 million years ago. So if you go to go to Google and you Google it, Google this, and if you take a look at the uh, at the images here, one second. So you will find evidence of an ancient hidden crater in this region. As you can see, there are all these sinkholes called cenotes that are laid out in a ring with its epicenter near the, the city, the, the, the village of Chikchulub. So, and there are these gravitational anomalies as well and all of that. So it's clear that there is an ancient massive impact crater hidden in the uh, Yucatan 
peninsula and this impact it has been dated to around 66 million years ago before today and we know what happened at that time the extinction event of the non avian dinosaurs it was a massive extinction event so what happened is that there was a massive space object maybe an asteroid or a comet that impacted the earth in that place in present day yucatan this object was about 10 kilometers in diameter it was traveling at approximately 20 to 30 kilometers per second and the kinetic energy of the impact was about roughly 5 billion 5 billion times is it 5 million i think it's 5 million times 5 million times the energy of the hiroshima atomic bomb that's 50 lakh times the energy emitted by the hiroshima nuclear bomb that was the energy released by this enormous extraterrestrial impact so it clearly caused a global catastrophe it caused a nuclear kind of winter it spewed enormous amounts of ash and dust and soil and smoke and soot and all that into the atmosphere which remained in earth atmosphere for maybe a decade so maybe for a decade or so there was no sunlight that killed off most of the plants and when all the plants die the animals that eat plants the herbivorous animals die and when herbivorous animals die the animals that eat those herbivorous animals they also die so that set off a mass extinction event maybe 90 95% of all species on the planet died out including the non avian dinosaurs but some tiny animals survived including the avian dinosaurs who eventually evolved in, into into today's birds and also some small mammals survived rat like animals who gave rise to us so our ancestors survived that now the question is what caused the mass extinction of the dinosaurs it is not only indian dinosaurs that died it's the global dinosaur population non avian dinosaurs that died out so the big controversy has been what caused this mass extinction was it the chicxulub impact event which was a massive event or was it the deccan traps volcanism in india so there's been a massive controversy there is this lady who came up with this idea the, the theory that it was the deccan traps volcanism that caused this uh, impact this uh, mass extinction and uh, she was marginalized and uh, laughed off for decades i think i've even written about this where do we have it i let me share the screen so i have actually written about this uh, so this is an article i wrote in 2018 so the mainstream consensus is nobel laureate luis alvarez's famous bad weekend scenario big rock from the sky hits the dinosaurs and boom they go they die out and the discovery of the 66 million year old chicxulub crater crater has bolstered this theory's credibility but one geologist disagrees and she has endured decades of ridicule for it goethe keller argues that the cretaceous paleogene extinction event the dinosaur extinction was caused by a series of colossal volcanic eruptions the deccan traps in india and their environmental consequences and uh, this lady had to endure decades of ridicule and all that but now it is widely accepted that it was most likely a combination of the chicxulub event 
and the Deccan Traps volcanism, a combination of these two things, these two factors that caused the extinction event of the dinosaurs and other animals, right? So most likely, it is a combination of two factors. The massive volcanism, super volcanism in India, the Deccan Traps, and at the same time, the Chicxulub e impact event. Both of these had consequences that eventually got together and caused the extinction event 66 million years ago, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event. So most likely it's a combination of both the factors. Okay, Hedgehog's Dilemma says, what is the true history of slavery in India? European scholars say that Dasa refers to slave. So Europeans are going to teach us what the meaning of Sanskrit words are. You know, it's, it's, I think the whole world agrees that it is wrong to study Jewish culture based on what the Nazis wrote about the Jews. It's also dishonest to form an opinion about uh, China based on what the West writes about China. You have to read Chinese scholarship to understand what China is, right? But it's somehow perfectly fine to base your entire research on Indian history based on what the Europeans colonizers wrote about India. Even today, what the Europeans wrote is regarded as the highest uh, knowledge and evidence about Indian history. And if Indians say something that is contrary to what the Europeans have written, they are ridiculed. No, 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 you are you Indians are stupid. So and so scholar wrote this and that's why it's right. What evidence do they have that the word Das refers to slave? There is There are multiple sources of evidence from outside India that attest to the fact that there was no slavery in India. Right? That the word Das in Sanskrit refers, means servant. That's what it means. And Das, servant, I mean, even the prime minister of the country is the servant of the people and the servant of the nation. Is it something bad to be a servant? No. You don't become a servant by force, you become a servant by choice because you choose to or because you need to. Servitude is not slavery. Servitude is voluntary. So the word das means servant. It has a variety of meanings and contexts in which you can be a servant. You can be a public servant. You can be the servant of a city. You can be the servant of a single family. You can be a servant of a single person, assistant, secretary, uh, whatever. Butler, footman, uh, charioteer, whatever it is, right? So, so the word dasa means servant. If some European comes and tells you what it means, tell them to move on. That's all I have to say about this. There was never ever any slavery in India until the past 1000 years of India's humiliation when the Turks and then the, then the Europeans brought slavery into India and took Indians as slaves. Before that, there was never ever any slavery in, in India. The only evidence they have tried, they have been able to find is the word das. There is no Sanskrit word for slave. So they have found the best possible approximation, something that is close to it, and they have tried to portray that as meaning slave. What evidence do they have for that? Do you find slavery in the archaeological record in India? If you go to Rome or wherever the Romans ruled, you find archaeological evidence of slavery. You find skeletons who are wearing these metal bands, skeletons in, in chains. If you look at the pre-Roman history of, of Europe, you will find slavery there also, evidence of slavery.
in in a variety of forms you don't find a single a single uh, uh, instance in the entire 10000 plus year archaeological record of india where there is hard evidence of slavery not one so they have tried to create this distortions through language entirely false lies fabrications distortions and this is not only the fault of these europeans even the irfan habibs and the romila thapers have are complicit in this so they need to be exposed for that okay harsh yadav says uh, you said that india is poor because of colonization then how do you explain the poverty of nepal which was never colonized you know this is a good question let's understand something so what is nepal nepal is a nation state right first of all the concept of the nation state begins in the 17th century with the treaty of westphalia which happened in 1648 1650 thereabouts look it up if you want to the treaty of westphalia is what created eventually in in the long run the concept of the westphalian nation state and the nation state system that we all live under today but for the entirety of human history we've never had nations we've had kingdoms empires and all that that's all we had we had so now uh, nepal these are facts don't hate me for it i am just presenting evidence you can look it up nepal is a rel- relatively young nation state founded solely on the basis of the conquests of one man prithvi narayan shah the the founder of nepal so he was the ruler of the gorkhas in today's central nepal and historically nepal this region which we now call nepal it's been part of various indian kingdoms and empires it was part of the mauryan empire it was part of the kushan empire it was part of the gupta empire it was part of the the magadha kingdom and so on and so forth and so on and so forth it's always been parts of various indian kingdoms and empires and they're the same people as us nepalese are not a different race or anything else same culture same people same blood same everything right so after this guy this gentleman prithvi narayan shah captured kathmandu in the nevar valley or nepal valley in the 18th century mid 18th century roughly he made it the capital of his kingdom and his kingdom uh was named after the nepal nevar valley nepal so why did nepal ab- avoid absorption into the british raj into british india when it was always part of various indian kingdoms and empires why was that it was able to avoid absorption into the british indian raj because it was useful as a buffer state between british india and the chinese occupied tibet so there was a time when there was a king dynasty garrison in tibet so the british wanted to create a some safe separation between british india and and the the chinese occupied tibet so they used nepal as a buffer state and that's why they kept it autonomous now just because there was a king in nepal who was de facto or or nominally autonomous from the british doesn't mean that he was completely autonomous the economy of the entire subcontinent is interrelated right so if you have one kingdom that is not part of the british raj it doesn't mean it's completely economically independent everything is interrelated it's interdependent it's an organism 
in an economic organism and the heartland of the Indian subcontinent, the wealth of the Indian subcontinent has always been in the river valleys. India is a river valley civilization. Whether it's the Indus Valley, the Saraswati Valley, the Ganga Valley, the Yamuna Valley, the Godavari Valley, the Tapti Valley, the, the whatever. It's always been a river valley civilization. That's where the wealth always lies. The Nevar Valley is high up in the mountains. They, what are the sources of wealth and in, income there? Nothing. Why do the people of Nepal come to India to work? First of all, because we are the same people, we have open borders, but because there is employment, generation, wealth, opportunities, etc. in the, the valleys, in the plains of India. Right? So, just because Prithvi Narayan Shah and his successors were independent nominally, doesn't mean that they, they would have been extremely prosperous. Nepal is in the mountains, in the hills. There, there's no great source of wealth over there. And also, let's not forget that the independence of Nepal from the British was only nominal. They allowed him to remain independent. It was, it was their choice. But there would have been conditions. Let's, let's take an example, a painful example. Who fired the bullets in the Jallianwala Bagh massacre? I believe there, were, there was a company of about 50 soldiers. Uh, 25 of these soldiers were either Balochis or, or Pashtuns, right? Slaves of the British Raj, Indians who fired upon Indians. So 25 of these soldiers were Balochis and Pashtuns. The other 25 of these soldiers who fired the bullets in the Jallianwala Bagh massacre were Gorkhas. They belonged to the nine Gorkha rifles. Who were they? They were Nepalese. So if Nepal was so independent, why were Gurkhas and Nepalese serving in the British Raj and firing upon their, upon their fellow Indians? These are facts, right? And if Nepal was so prosperous at the time, why did they have to come and work for the British Raj? So the fact is that being a hilly mountainous kingdom, Nepal never had any great sources of income. The entire subcontinent was one economic entity and when Nepal was prosperous it was because the whole country was prosperous and when the British destroyed the country, when the British plundered and transferred all the wealth, 45 trillion plus dollars of worth of wealth from India, Nepal also suffered the consequences of that. When the whole country was prosperous, even these far-flung hilly regions would have benefited from the prosperity. When India was destroyed, the far-flung hilly regions, even they were no, even if they were nominally independent, also declined because where's the money? So that is what happened. So Nepal was never colonized in, I mean, officially. But yeah, all of these facts are facts. The Nepalese were serving in the British Raj as in, in, a, in a variety of capabilities, in a, capacities, right? And even today, there are Nepalese Gorkhas who go and serve in the British Army because it's, uh, well, financial benefits. Okay, Divya Rabari says, um, thank you, Divya. I have always wondered whether it's more important for a politician or a leader to have a stronger vision or be extremely clever. Especially as you have IAS and experts around you, you could say vision and leadership quality trumps smartness. Also, as a leader, is it right to excel in one topic or have knowledge in, in all topics. 
it doesn't mean you should neglect intellectuality listen ias and experts they are not leaders they are people who do as they are told they they carry out the bureaucratic activity they, you don't you cannot consider them to be leaders now think about the the great leaders whom you may admire uh historically or maybe the the two three leaders of today's today's world that you admire think about them what kind of people are there can you become a great leader without being extremely clever it's impossible to think of the great leaders that you admire today i can guarantee that whoever you can think of top 3 they are all extremely clear none of them is stupid or dumb right now on the other hand you may be very clever but can you become a leader without having a big strong long term vision for your people and your country no a great leader will definitely have a great vision for the country some big objective that everybody should work towards so the truth is that a leader needs to have all of these qualities you cannot become a great leader without having a great big vision and also being very very clever very intelligent and it's not enough to have to excel in just one topic you have to understand the entire world you have to understand history geopolitics economics uh, military matters strategy grand strategy tactics politics how to manage people so many things you have to understand all of this so a great leader is somebody a genuinely great leader would have a good understanding of all of these topics it's not about being intellectual it's about being practical about having practical knowledge of all of these things you need to be a genuine all-rounder in all of these things only then can you be a genuinely great leader like a once in a 100 years kind of leader you have all these so-called politicians who call themselves leaders but many of them are genuine are, are massively deficient in many of these these aspects there are very few who are good at everything and they are the ones the ones who are good at all of these all of these things they are the ones who can be considered to be great leaders and who can make a genuine positive impact on their country and on, on the entire world so to be a genuinely great leader you need to be very clever very intelligent you need to have a great vision and you need to have a very strong understanding of multiple topics only then can you be a genuinely great leader rumble tv says how uh, what should i do to get respect and attention in my family they never take me and my decision seriously well think of the people you admire think of the people you respect what are the what are their qualities i can see there's a difference between liking somebody and respecting somebody you can like a person without quite respecting them there are many people who are very nice people you know very good people good hearts well meaning people so you like such people right but you kind of you may not quite respect them so what creates respect real world achievements create respect and the greater your achievements the greater the respect for a person it's always results real world results that generate respect for a person in the eyes of their peers the family or whoever else society so the more you achieve the more you offer to society or the more you gain for yourself the more you will be respected and the more you offer society the more respect you will have so how do you gain respect and attention in your family firstly produce 
produce some real world results the simplest form of of producing real world results is to get a job and earn money the moment you become financially independent you will gain a certain amount of respect in the family you will not be disrespected anymore you are financially independent you are not dependent on other people for money that itself brings you a certain amount of respect now if you are earning 30000 a month and you are financially independent it's okay at least you will gain respect that this person is independent but if you are able to increase your earnings to let's say 5 lakh rupees a month well that's going to increase the magnitude of respect that's how the world works unfortunately people are very shallow very superficial if you are earning a lot you you will automatically gain respect so that's what it is but real respect on a large scale you will get if you contribute something genuinely valuable to society as a whole so that's uh, that's bigger respect you know in the long term respect so if you're talking about your family the first thing is become financially independent produce some real world results and you will immediately gain respect in a family and then you will not have to worry about whether they take your decision seriously or not you will be able to make decisions independently and that itself is more than enough for a person to start off with so that's the advice i can offer aman raj says what should we do after repeated failures even after working hard it actually hurts yes it does it hurts well i don't know what you're working towards i don't know the specifics so i can offer you general advice you have two options either change your objectives that's option a change your objectives change your goals or option b is change your strategy so maybe whatever you're trying to achieve and you're failing maybe it's not the right target for you or not the, not the right goal for you maybe you're going in the wrong direction maybe you should be taking your life in a different direction you should have a different objective that is one one possibility so recalibrate your goals that is one thing you could look into otherwise if the objectives you're trying to achieve are indeed the correct objectives for your life then you need to change your strategy what is a strategy it's a map a map of how to get from point a to point b without a map you simply cannot cross the road or or traverse the distance you need a map of how to get from point a to point b that is your strategy as long as you have a map you will get there if your map is bad then it will take you years to get there or maybe you won't get there but if you have a good map you will get there quickly and you will make significant progress so your map is your strategy you need to know how to get to where you want to get so how do you change your map how do you get the right map by studying the world how did other people achieve what i am trying to achieve study their successes study how they achieved it so that's the general advice i can give yeah it hurts but if if you are failing repeatedly something is wrong either you have got the wrong goals or you are using the wrong map change one or both if you change one you may see results if you change both again you may see results so you need to decide what is best what is the right approach for you whether you want to change your goals or change your strategy all the best sir nikhil swami says what if the british or any european forces did not invade india and the sultanate had ruled all the way until the present how might have the demography of india looked like this is something i would have believed 20 years ago you know if you some 20 years ago i had a different view of the world i thought the british did a very good thing for india they saved us from the turks they freed india 
they gave us education, they gave us the English language, they gave us railways, blah, 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 blah. That's what I used to believe 20, 25 years ago. Then my eyes were opened and I learned, studied actual history. The truth is, the British did not destroy the Sultanate. The British destroyed the Maratha Empire. The Marathas had destroyed, annihilated the Turkic Sultanate. And there's a map uh, which we can look at. High tide of the Maratha Empire. Let's take a look at that. Let me share my screen. So this is the Maratha Empire from the mid-18th century. As you can see, they had wiped out the so-called Delhi Sultanate and reclaimed large portions of India and liberated large portions of India. So this was the high tide of the Maratha Empire, 1759. Where is the Delhi Sultanate? It's nowhere to be seen. Unfortunately, the Marathas could not, well, they had all this infighting, they, they, they had this, well, a number of issues, because of which, and the, and the British and the British were able to take advantage of that and slowly, gradually take over India. So the British and the Europeans did not liberate India from the Sultanate. It was the Marathas who liberated India and established what they called Hindavi Swarajya. The British destroyed that. So that's what the British did. And they did so many terrible things in India, which I have gone into in the past. So had the British not invaded in India and not destroyed the Maratha Empire, the demography of India would have looked starkly different, very different. India would have been what people like to call today, what uh, Hindu Rashtra. That's what India would have been. And the national language of India would have been Marathi. These are obviously, that's, that's just logic, right? So that's what would have happened. Prakar says, were the French more sympathetic towards the natives when they occupied territories? What would India have looked like if it was the French instead of the British who ruled during the 19th and 20th century? The French had the same objectives as the British. The French were just as brutal as the British. The French also destroyed temples and built churches over them. Go to South India, go to Pondicherry, go to Tamil Nadu, you will feel, you'll find lots of examples where the French ruled and they destroyed temples and built churches over them. These are facts. These are facts. Whether you people like it or not, come on. Facts are facts. Facts don't care about anyone's feelings. The French would have been just as brutal. They would have done the very same things the British did. But the only difference is that we would be speaking French today. All of us would be speaking in French. And we would be thinking that French is the greatest language in the world. Hindi, Sanskrit, Gujarati, Tamil, etc. is poor. French. Vive la France. So that's the only difference we would have seen. We would still be completely mentally colonized the way we are today. That's the only difference. Okay, Neil Mehta says, once you mentioned about your interest in chess, so what's your opinion about Gary Kasparov as a player and his views about Vladimir Putin, about his, about how he is an evil dictator? Yes, uh, chess is a game that I used to really enjoy as a kid. Then I gave it up because it's very time consuming. You play a chess game, you'll spend two, three hours playing it if you're serious, you know. So I was good. I was reasonably good at it, but I never played professionally or anything. I used to enjoy it as a kid. But then I quit the, the game, too time-consuming. Uh, Gary Kasparov, great player, one of the greatest of all time. Very interesting history. He was from Azerbaijan in the USSR. It's it's presently an independent country. So uh, 
Gary Kasparov was born Gary Weinstein, I think. Weinstein. His actual surname was Weinstein. His father, his father was a Jew. So he is half Jewish. His mother was Armenian, I think. And uh, because the, the USSR was kind of anti-Semitic or whatever, that's why he took up his mother's side surname and became Kasparov or something. So that's uh, his background. He was always a very good player, chess player as a kid. He became world champion, I think, in 1984 by, dis- by, by defeating Anatoly Karpov, his compatriot, Russian compatriot. Uh, they had two world championship matches. The first one went like it was a massive champion- championship match. 30, 40 chess matches they played. Karpov was leading 5-0. Then Kasparov changed his entire strategy. And then he started started slowly clawing his way back. The game, the score became 5-3 or 5-4 or something. And then it was so exhausting. More than 40 games had been played. So the championship was called off. Think about these chess games. Chess is a cerebral sport. But if you participate, if, if a professional chess player, a grandmaster, participates in a week-long, week-long tournament, they're going to end up losing 4 or 5 or maybe 10 kilos of weight. That's how much mental energy the game takes and the brain is the most energy hungry organ in the body so chess players if they participate in extended tournaments they may end up losing 5 or 10 kilos of weight that's how intense this game is so these guys Kasparov and Karpov they played more than 40 games I think in the first championship and then it had to be abandoned because it would have killed them both they both wanted to continue I believe but then it was abandoned then the same year, a few months later, there was a rematch. And that, I think, Kasparov won and he became world champion at the age of, I don't know. It was an 84, I think. I don't know what his age was. He was very young. And then he was, he went on to become one of the greatest champions of all time. He defeated various other people, including uh, Nigel Short, uh, Vishwanathan Anand. Eventually, I think he lost to Vladimir Kramnik. Um and he retired in the 2000s, I believe. He also lost to a machine. The first uh, human uh, grandmaster or, or champion to lose to a machine. Deep Blue, I think it was called. A chess machine. Chess computer. So that's about him as a player. One of the greatest players of all time. He was a very intense player. When he would have made his move and the other player was... He was waiting for the other player to make, make his move or her move. Mostly his move. He would constantly stare at the person. Stare, stare, stare. Glare into their eyes put this mental pressure on the person. So he had these tactics he would use and he, I think he was fond of staying physically strong and fit, which is important for a chess player. So one of the greatest of all times, no doubt about that. After retirement, he's become very politically active. I think he's he has formed a political party or he's a member of a political party, something like that. It's a pro-West political party, anti-Putin political party. So his views are very strong about Putin. He considers Putin to be an evil dictator. Uh, he believes, uh, Kasparov believes in democracy, Western democracy, liberal democracy, whatever. He's very strongly anti-Putin, pro-West and so on and so forth. So that's about him and his politics. So the thing is, you can admire somebody without agreeing with their politics. Like I've said before, there are many people I admire as human beings for their achievements in their whatever field it is. But you don't have to agree with their politics. So I admire Kasparov for his achievements in chess. One of the greatest chess players of all time. One of the greatest uh, sports people of all time. But I don't quite agree with his politics. But 
and he has the right to what have whatever view he views he has and that's fine so that's my view about gary kasparov uh pronomo anindo says my heart okay thank you so much uh, my question is scientists have taken a photograph of a black hole recently but even but if even light cannot escape the gravitational pull of the black hole how was the picture taken anyway since it would require light isn't it is there something more to it let us go to that so there was this picture that was taken let me share that on the screen so this is the picture taken by the event horizon telescope it's this fuzzy image of a black hole this is a simulation of what it would it would have looked like and this is the actual image so what are we seeing in this we are seeing a reasonably circular ring of light and a dark portion the dark portion is the actual black hole the edge of the dark portion is the event horizon the point of no return and all of this luminous material is the accretion disk so it's the what we are seeing is the light from the accretion disk we are not actually seeing the black hole which is dark right so we are seeing the effect the black hole has on its surroundings which is the accretion disk which is all of this material that is falling into the black hole and it is falling at supersonic velocities it it's heating up and it's emitting enormous amounts of light so that is what we are seeing and the actual black hole is the dark portion so we don't see it there is no light there so so the picture is of the light and the material that surrounds the black hole and the dark portion is the actual black hole so it's a picture not of the black hole itself but the light and the effect that it has around it so so that is correct we can't actually see darkness so the darkness is the dark portion so that's correct right so what we are seeing is not the black hole itself but its effect on the surroundings and we can see the shape of the black hole the dark shape which is spherical so there is nothing more to it it's very simple okay tejas says how would you advise youngsters like me to manage their personal finance how much amount of your monthly income should you save the answer is simple save as, as much as you can money see money doesn't buy you happiness but what money offers you is freedom money is freedom and money is power money gives you the power to do whatever you want with your time the freedom to do whatever with you do you want to do with your time so the correct way to enjoy money is to keep it in a bank account or keep it invested somewhere in the right places the moment you spend it it's gone your power is gone your freedom is gone so stop buying useless things stop buying things you don't need stop buying a expensive phone every year i buy a phone once in 4 years i buy the reasonably cheap phone i don't buy very expensive phones what's the need for that you don't need that don't buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like <laughs> don't buy expensive branded clothes 2000 rupees 3000 rupees or whatever stop wasting money save money invest money so how much of your monthly income should you should you save well if you are a starter if you're starting off in your journey so let's say you are in college or university and you are doing some part time job to have some extra income maybe you are earning 10 15000 rupees for a few hours of work every week every week you should save all of it save all of it or invest all of it 
if you have your first full time job maybe you are earning 30 50000 rupees a month hypothetically so that is not a lot of money let's say you are a beginner your first job offers you 50 let's say 30000 rupees that's how it goes so many people so if you are earning just 30000 rupees you will have your rent to take care of your in your expenses food clothing all that so not a lot will be left behind so in that case if your income is less then try to save at least 20% of it so what is 20% of 30000 rupees it's 6000 rupees i'm sure anybody can save that so save that invest it or whatever if you are earning 1 lakh a month you can easily save 40 or 50% of it invest it somewhere if you are earning 10 lakh a month i'm sure you can save 90% of it so the more your income rises the more you will be able to save save it don't waste money on useless things of course you should have some fun go go to restaurant once in a while hang out with your friends have a party once a week or whatever works for you but don't have a habit of wasting money unnecessarily it's not going to buy you any happiness it's just a temporary rush there is this uh, this uh, concept right of uh, what do they call it retail therapy you're not feeling good you're feeling unhappy go go do a lot of shopping go spend a few thousand rupees you'll feel better you'll feel better for a few minutes once you come back home you'll feel terrible you wasted so much money and you bought all this stuff you don't need so things don't buy you happiness freedom buys you happiness let's say you have 1 crore rupees in your bank account and you have invested all of that into getting let's say 10% returns per year 10% returns per year of 1 crore rupees is 10 lakh rupees you can live a very comfortable life on 10 lakh rupees a year without having to work you can even have a couple of vacations per year if you use it wisely so money is power money is freedom money will not buy you happiness it will buy you freedom so save as much as you can have some fun enjoy your money but don't waste it unnecessarily so depending on how much you earn you can save more or less that's the general advice i would give bibek halder says uh, what is greater natural talent or hard work people say that hard work can surpass talent but i guess somebody with natural talent can surpass a hard worker with much less effort and time my opinion is very clear talent is overrated there is nothing without hard work you may have you may be the most naturally talented person in the world if you are lazy if you are incapable of doing hard work you will achieve nothing in life unfortunately there are so many examples in sport in sports of outrageously talented youngsters you can see they have this incredible talent but for whatever reason they waste it and they achieve nothing much there are so many examples in, in a variety of sports whether it is cricket whether it's football whether it's tennis whether it's golf or whatever so many examples of wasted talent and the major reason is that they got misled they earned some money and they started enjoying the high life or most likely because they were not capable of working hard so there are so many examples of that so you may be the most talented person in the world but unless you are willing to be really willing to work really hard and be disciplined and dedicated unless you have that you will achieve not much in your life look at the great champions in tennis roger federer he is outrageously talented but there are people who have such uh, talent like him they achieve not much why was roger federer able to achieve so much 
because of his incredible work ethic, because of the hard work that he put in. He would not have won 20 Grand Slam titles over all these years had he not worked so hard at his game. So talent is just the precondition for success. But the real condition is the ability to work really hard, to dedicate weeks, months, years of your life in the pursuit of your whatever objectives you have. So a natural talent is of no use without the ability and the willingness to work really, really hard. And it's not for everybody. Not everybody is made for working very hard. So so most people, they want to live reasonably good lives, ordinary, comfortable lives. They don't want to achieve anything great, which is perfectly fine. Everybody is different. Everybody should achieve what makes them happy. So if you want to have an ordinary, happy, normal life, if that makes you happy, great. That's what we should go for. But some people want to achieve great things. For them, it's not an easy journey. So that's how it is. So so in my opinion, talent is good, but it is worthless without the ability to work really, really hard. Okay, Kunal says, we see that almost in every religion, there is a story of a great flood, the story of Matsya, Avatar, and Manu, story of Noah's Ark, story of Gilgamesh, story of Moses. Edmund Halley argued it could have been a causal shock by an impact of a comet. I want to know if there, there was such a historical event. Yeah, so it's true that most of the ancient cultures of the world, whether it's Egypt, whether it's India, whether it's Mesopotamia or the, the Jewish Semitic traditions or whatever, all of these cultures have a flood myth, a story of an ancient flood. Now, obviously you can't have a flood that, that encompassed the whole world. That doesn't make sense. The thing is, most of the ancient civilizations, they were centered around rivers. Without a river, there's no civilization mostly. India is a major river valley civilization. And uh, similarly in, in uh, Mesopotamia, the story of Gilgamesh, etc., you have the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. In Egypt, you have the Great Nile and so on and so forth. So wherever you have rivers, from time to time, you have big floods. So maybe that is the reason why this story or this pattern recurs throughout history and throughout a variety of cultures. Maybe that is the reason why. Because all of these cultures were built around great rivers. Maybe that's the reason why. Maybe there were different floods on different rivers. So that could be one reason. Or maybe there was some global impact, global event that may have caused flooding in many parts of the world at the same time, possibly. So that is also a possibility that can be considered. Uh, there is this uh, hypothesized event about 12 or 13,000 years before today called the Younger Dryas event. So it looks like there was some kind of a extraterrestrial impact event. Not a very massive one, but something that definitely did cause global cooling for a thousand or so years and maybe it would have caused some uh, flooding as well. So that is a hypothesis. It's a theory. It's not been conclusively proven, but it's something that is taken more seriously in recent times. So that is a possibility. So we don't have any hard evidence as of today of some event that would have caused global flooding in Asia, Eurasia, as well as Africa. We don't have any evidence as of today, but there are possibilities. So one possibility is a global event, a global impact event like the like the hypothetical Younger Dryas event. Or maybe each of these cultures was founded on major rivers and every river has a big flood once in a you know, 500 years or 1,000 years 
or something like that. So maybe that's the reason why there are so many flood stories. Kostum says, according to the latest IMF and World Bank reports for this financial year 2022-23, India's GDP is set to grow at 9.2%. Is this a good pace or do we need to increase it into double digits for becoming the third largest economy by 2930? It's a good pace. 9.2 is excellent. Ideally, we want 10% plus, but yeah, you know, 9 is not bad. Uh, nobody is going to say 9 is bad. So I think it's a good rate of growth. The trick is to sustain this sort of growth for two decades. Not one decade, but it, we, need to, we need this sort of growth for two decades. Then we will become a major economy, you know, $10 trillion plus. So we need at least 8 or 9% growth. I would say at least 8% growth for 20 years. So the trick is not to have a single year of high growth. The trick is to have sustained high growth over two decades. That is what we need to do. So I am very happy that our economy is going to grow at 9.2% this year. It is projected to grow at this at this rate. Excellent. We need to find ways of sustaining this growth and hopefully even increasing it further. So that is what needs to happen. Now, please understand that high GDP and high growth is a prerequisite for a country becoming prosperous. It's not quite enough. What really is important is if you are prosperous, you need good leadership. So let's say India becomes a $10 trillion economy. Is it, is it enough for India to become a major power, superpower? Not quite. You may be a major economy, but if you are mismanaging your country or whatever, it's not going to work. Think about sports. There are certain, uh, certain sports teams. Let's talk about the IPL. Some teams have a lot of funding, a lot of money, but they don't necessarily win the title every year. Right? So having money is good. It's a prerequisite for growth and achievement, but it's not the only ingredient. You need the right kind of leadership for a country and for a sports team to become a genuine power. Whether it is the IPL, whether it is the English Premier League, there are teams like Manchester United, Liverpool, etc., who have bucket loads of money, and yet they're not doing well. So please remember this also. It's not enough to have money. The right leadership is the most important thing. So India will need all of these ingredients in the next 20 years to become a great power, which I hope it will. Abhishek says, do you intend to do prolonged fasting every year now? I've tried, I recently tried multiple prolonged fasts, the longest being one week long. I experienced dizziness, weakness and general fatigue on most days. At no point I felt that energy and zest that some people talk about when they fast. I measured my parameters as well. My sugar was constantly around 50, uh, post 48 hours of fasting. Am I doing something wrong? What was your general experience in terms of how you felt overall? See, I would not recommend prolonged fasting to anybody without medical supervision. Now, I have done this thing multiple times. Uh, in the year, which year was it? 2020? I think it was in 21. In March or so, I did a 21-day water fast. Only water. No calories, no food. 21 days. Then the same year, I think in uh, a few months later, I did a 23-day fast, which I actually put out. I did a series of vlogs on another channel, on, a, on my other YouTube channel. So I fasted for 23 days. Only water. No food. Uh, so about that. This, uh, this uh, when was it? December, was it? Yeah, the first two fasts were in the year 2020. This uh, last December, I did a 14-day fast. I intended it to be a 21-day fast. 
uh, broke it off at 14 days. So once again, 14 days, only water, no calories. So I have done this multiple times without medical supervision, maybe not the smartest thing to do, but uh, I understand my body very well. I've had a lot of experience with it and I always ensure that I was reasonably overweight when I started the fast because you lose weight very fast. So I would not advise anybody to do any kind of prolonged fasting without medical supervision and medical advice. I mean, everybody's body is different. I have a very robust body. I'm physically, well, thanks to the gods, I'm reasonably, reasonably physically strong. So my body is able to take it. I did not measure my sugar or anything. The only parameters I measured were my weight, my blood pressure, and my pulse rate. That's the only parameters I measured. As long as that was fine, I kept on doing the fasting and I overall felt good. I did not experience major dizziness, weakness or fatigue uh, throughout the thing. I actually felt great when I was fasting. I felt mentally very clear, great mental clarity. Physically, your strength decreases, not doubt about it. If you don't eat, I mean, if you don't eat for 14, 20, 2, 3 weeks, your, physically st your physical strength will decrease. Your muscle mass will shrink. I've experienced that every single time. So there are effects of fasting. But uh, I did feel a great amount of mental clarity, energy as well. So you can feel energetic without being physically strong. You can, right? So you lose muscle mass, you lose weight, you become physically weaker, but you feel more energetic. That is my experience. So I don't know what is uh, how it is going for you. Everybody's body is different. Everybody's background is different. Your genetics are different. Your metabolism is different. Your food habits are different. There's so many parameters that goes into all of this. So I'm not sure if you're doing anything wrong or right. My general experience has always been great. I've always loved it. I will do it again in the, in the future. But I would uh, issue a word of strong caution. I would advise nobody to do this without first consulting a good doctor and being through, uh, throughout supervi supervised by a good doctor. That's the safest way of doing this. Spurs Segal says, what's the difference between a vassal state and a colony? Is the latter a harsher term than the former as it represents slavery, slavery loot, plunders that India suffered for eight centuries. In this context, are Japan, UK, Germany, etc. vassal states of the US or are they pure colonies? Need your opinion. Okay, very good. A colony is a country or a nation or a geographical region where a more powerful country comes and indulges in extraction of wealth and treasure. And maybe they take over the land and they settle their own people there. Look at North America. It's a colony of the Europeans. They went to North America, settled down there, massacred the natives. Most likely about 100 million natives were massacred over a couple of centuries, over three, four centuries maybe. And they have stolen the entire land. That's a colony. So that is settler colonialism. They settled there. They, they stole the land. In the case of India, India was a colony of the UK, of, of the British. They did not quite settle down in India, but they extracted everything of value out of India. They enriched themselves at our expense. They destroyed India's economy, India's econ industries, everything in India. And they extracted more than $45 trillion worth of wealth and treasure out of India. And that's why the West is so prosperous. 
that is colony that is colonization a vassal state is not a colony a vassal state is a nation or a country or whatever or a kingdom that is subordinate to your kingdom but you don't extract wealth you don't destroy the land you don't you don't plunder the country they are subordinate to you they give you a certain amount of tax per year or, or what do they call it they call it uh, i'm not sure i don't remember the term for it tribute they pay you tribute every year and they acknowledge you as their suzerain as their overlord and whenever you tell them to do certain things they will do it for you let me give you a, an example about 1200 or so years before today the vikings were plundering europe they were plundering um, they were raiding and plundering the uk the british islands and also western europe western france etc and one of these major uh, raiders was a guy a viking called rollo rollo so this guy would come and plunder the uk the, the british islands and even western france repeatedly year after year so eventually the the king of france he offered rollo a deal he said i will offer you a huge amount of land in north western france you and your men will settle down in this territory which belongs to me you will settle down there and you will rule it as if you were the kings so rollo will be the king but you will be my you will be uh, i will be your overlord you will recognize me as your king so you will be the duke of this place and uh, you will have to marry the french women uh, french women and and adopt the french language and become christians so that was a deal rollo accepted that and he became the first duke of normandy so normandy this region in northwestern france was a de facto vassal state of france it was part of france it was ruled by rollo independently but every year he paid tribute to the king of france and whenever the king of france needed rollo to come and fight for him with his soldiers he would have to come and fight for him so that is a vassal state it's not a colony a colony is something that you loot and destroy completely a vassal state has a certain different role so there's this subtle difference it's it's actually quite unsubtle so that in brief is the difference between a vassal state and a colony so the us is not plundering japan it's not but it is japan is very much under the boots of the us the same goes for germany the same goes for the uk they do whatever they are told they don't really have an independent foreign policy they don't really have an independent internal policy also to a certain extent so that is a vassal state they are not being plundered actively but they are subordinate to the us in a variety of ways that's why i keep saying that japan south korea the uk germany etc are us vassal states they're not colonies they're vassal states australia may be a colony okay game loops is how does the mind of a theoretical physicist work it depends on the person so there are certain things that are common to every theoretical phys- 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 physicist or every scientist the scientific method you have a very clear understanding of scientific of the scientific method what it is you don't mix up science and spirituality science and religion you don't do that as a as a physicist or as a scientist so that is something every scientist has every mathematician also has this and uh, every theoretical physicist has a good good grasp of 
a big range of mathematical tools the so called mathematical methods of physics you need to be good at all of that so it's like uh, having a multitude of different skills and a good theoretical physicist also has the ability to learn new math on demand so if i need to solve a problem but uh, it needs a certain kind of mathematics that i don't know i should be able to learn that very quickly maybe in a couple of days or maybe a week depending on the magnitude of the problem you're solving so that is something that's common to all theoretical physicists now um some but there are two categories of theoretical physicists and mathematicians also so one is the procedural scientist the other one is the intuitive scientist the procedural physicist or the procedural mathematician will try to solve a problem by going step by step using the tool of mathematics step by step you go progress in the direction slowly 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 and eventually you solve the problem that is the procedural theoretical physicist and the procedural mathematician but there are a small there's a small minority of theoretical physicists and mathematicians who are not procedural they are intuitive problem solvers they see the solution before they figure out how to do it so they know what the solution is and then they spend spend a long time trying to work out the mathematics of how to reach the solution in a logical sequential way but they intuitively know answers before they actually reach there so that is the small minority of the theoretical physicists people and mathematicians people like ramanujan very intuitive mathematician someone like john nash very intuitive mathematician and i'm sure certain physicists would also fall into this category people like uh, maybe albert einstein maybe somebody else so so it's a there are different kinds of scientists and the the geniuses typically are the ones who are intuitive they can see the solution before they figure out how to reach the solution so they are the geniuses they have these flashes of insight that come from god knows where ramanujan was used to say that it used to come from his goddess and she, she used to come in his dreams and offer him the equations and then he would write down the equations when he woke up but he would not quite know how to offer how to work out the proof of the equations and then it would take him time to work out the proof of the equations but he would get the equation before he actually knew how to work the proof so that's a highly intuitive mathematician or scientist those are the geniuses okay alpha says what will be our future most probably be like will it be dystopian will it be high tech will it be mingled with nature well i hope it is high tech and mingled with nature with nature dystopian future is the worst possible thing pollution destroyed environment deforestation our oceans and rivers full of plastic that's a dystopian future and big data big brother ruling over us a global government yeah digital slavery so that is a dystopian future when when humanity has lost all free will we are slaves to the algorithm we are all hooked to the metaverse sitting in a dark corner of some room but we think we are doing great things that is a dystopian future i hope we are not going in the direction we are actually going in the, in the direction i hope there is a course correction at some point in time in the near future what i would like to see is a high tech future mingled with nature nature is very important if we destroy nature there is no future i would like to see nature reemerge again you know i would like to see more forests more greenery i would also like to see high technology and you know in the 1950s and 60s the science fiction writers had imagined worlds in which uh 
technology had solved all the problems of the world and nobody had to work anymore and people would go out of creative pursuits without having to work and having to earn so that was the utopian future they had imagined today we are going towards a dystopian future so i hope that we have a high tech future which is mingled with nature but unfortunately we are going in the wrong direction we are going towards a dystopian future if you look at all the science fiction movies and novels that you see today all talk about a dystopian world which is terrible so i hope that doesn't happen uh asha says you said the batman movie was depressing in your opinion can you name any optimistic movie you can recommend and do you follow any director like nolan or quentin tarantino etc uh yeah i thought the batman movie was was depressing and the the strange thing the funny thing is that so many people got upset about that i got so many of these comments where people were angry and upset why do you get upset why do you react emotionally you don't have to agree with me if you liked the movie great good for you i did not like it we can agree to disagree there's no need to get upset about it or get angry about me not liking a certain movie i did not like it i found it very depressing dark i do not like it at all so and and it's not like i don't i it's not like i dis- dislike all dark movies there are certain movies that are really well made i can think of an example the ring it's a horror movie from the early 2000s it was incredibly dark very somber it was kind of depressing but it was a really well made movie i liked the movie but i did not like the feeling it it uh, the the emotions it evokes in you it's atmospheric horror it's not that physical gore slasher kind of horror it's emotion it, it is it is atmospheric horror and psychological horror uh so it was it was a very well made movie so um can i name any optimistic movies that i can recommend i can name lots of movies that i liked life is beautiful by roberto benigni i think it's from 97 or something 1997 or something i think it won the oscar award for the best foreign movie or something really good movie very optimistic positive movie i like uh, directors like quentin tarantino great director pulp fiction i like pulp fiction i like fight club the good the bad and the ugly by sergio leone uh, the matrix star wars interstellar a dark movie like seven really well made i like movies like the terminator predator conan the barbarian uh japanese movies by directors like akira kurosawa the seven samurai yojimbo kage musha i'm sure most of you have not heard of that uh then war movies i don't mind war movies Ap- apocalypse now uh detective stories mystery stories the usual suspects uh the godfather alien lord of the rings forest gump a very positive movie and then uh, Leon the professional the fifth element die hard movies by charlie chaplin like modern times the great dictator uh, city lights then alfred hitchcock vertigo a war movie like uh, das boot a german movie and so on so as you can see most of my influences are from outside india that's how i grew up that's the influences i absorbed and i can't i have also watched lots of indian movies but i can't quite think of any really good movies from bollywood or whatever I liked Bahubali in recent times it was good I liked that uh older bollywood movies were nice but then I found out many of them were plagiarized this either the, the story was plagiarized or the songs were plagiarized and that kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth so yeah there were there are certainly some very good indian movies and a lot of good music also from older movies today's movies from from 
Bollywood are mostly trash, mostly garbage. So I just avoid that. I don't watch anymore. So, so that's what I can say. I like certain directors like Quentin Tarantino. I think all of his movies are really stylish, very good stories, and very, very, very good way of telling a story. I like Christopher Nolan as well, and there are many other directors that, directors that I like. I'm sure I've missed out a lot of these movies and directors I like, but just a small sample, so to say. Okay, um, Kripa says. Uh, this is a question from my daughter. Due to relativity, if two objects are going at 60% of the speed of light relative to me and going in opposite directions, would they be going at 120% of the speed of light relative to each other? Since nothing goes beyond the speed of light, what would actually happen? So from your perspective, it would feel like they are going at 120% of the speed of light in opposite direction, but only from your perspective. If you go into the reference frame of either of these two objects and you apply the Lorentz transformations, which you can look up, then I believe it will come out to be about 80-85% of the speed of light relative to each other. But relative to you, the observer at the midpoint, it will appear to you like they are going in opposite directions at 120% of the, of the speed of light, but only relative to you, it's an illusion. From either of their perspectives, from their reference frames, it's going to be about, I think if you, if you do the calculations, it's about 80-85% somewhere there of the speed of light. So if you have two protons going in opposite directions, that's the kind of relativistic effect you will observe. And you can calculate that very easily, very quickly using the Lorentz, Lorentz transformations. So that's what I can see. Um, Rishi says, you have often emphasized on the importance of the Sanskrit language for our culture. So how can a youth of today learn pure Sanskrit or build a successful career in Sanskrit? Well, Sanskrit is a bedrock of our culture, of the entirety of Indian culture. Uh, so how can a youth of today learn pure Sanskrit? I have uh, given this book reference multiple times of Sanskrit, Sanskrit Swayam Shikshak. It's a book in Hindi, not available in English. But if you can read Hindi, acquire the book. It's a very cheap book, small book. And you can uh, acquire a very good understanding of Sanskrit in just a couple of months using that book. Uh, can you build a successful career in it? I think there is a huge demand among the Indian people for learning Sanskrit. And there are many YouTube channels that do a very poor job of teaching you Sanskrit. Learning a language should be really easy, but only if the teacher knows how to teach it properly. I see most of these channels, I'm not naming names, I'm sure there are some good ones as well. But most of the channels I've seen that try to teach Sanskrit do it in a very difficult manner. It's not easy to understand. So if you can figure out how to teach Sanskrit in a simple manner, I'm sure you can make a very profitable and successful career out of it. So first you will have to learn Sanskrit at a, at a high level of proficiency. Then you will have to acquire the skills of teaching it effectively. If you do that, you will have a good career in Sanskrit. Okay, let's take a look at some of the comments, uh, live chat comments. My favorite sci-fi movie is Love Story 2050. Never heard of it, but let's look it up. Okay. Do you have any questions? If you have questions, I will do a few minutes of live chat questions, comments. Go ahead. Ask me. Um, let's see. What's the secret of your hair? Vijay Vagila says. There's no secret. Just don't cut it. Let it, let it go. There you have it. See, I have not cut it for two, more than two years. 
I think the last time I cut my hair, I had a haircut was in August, I believe, 20, 2019. So it's going to be three years and you can see it grows slowly. So just don't cut your hair, let it go, let it go wild. <laughs> so that's the secret. Wash it reasonably frequently and that's all. There's no other secret. All right, what else do we have? <clears throat> Originally, are we humans veg or non-veg? I think originally all animals. See, all food is the predation of other living beings. Beings. Um, so I believe in the past. Let's say if you go back 66 million years before today, to the time of the Deccan traps, volcanism, and the Chicxulub impact event, our ancestors were were, were small rat-like creatures, very small mammals that survived this horrible impact event. So I believe that in order to survive, they they were forced to eat whatever they could find. And maybe they had to eat the remains of other dinosaurs or something like that. So eventually, if you go back far enough, you will have non-vegetarian carnivorous ancestors. But in India, in our culture, we had this great subcontinent, very fertile, very rich subcontinent, so many resources. So it became unnecessary to kill animals. in order to sustain yourself there was so much vegetation such fertile soil that you do not have to kill animals and that's how i think we our ancestors preferred overall to become vegetarian but indians at least some indians at all times have been non vegetarian so that's just how it has been for us what food do you like I love all kinds of food. Yeah, wherever I go I want to try the local food. You know. So I I I love traveling. I love love traveling across the country, across the world and where whichever new place I go to I would I always like to eat the local food. I like to interact with the local people. I love variety. You know some people they enjoy they they like sameness. They want to be people with who speak the same language or the or the same beliefs as them and who eat the same food as them. I am the opposite of that. I like to I like variety. I like traveling. I like interacting with people who speak different languages, who have different backgrounds, and I like to try a variety of different cuisines. So I like all kinds of cuisines. I think every country, every culture has some interesting something interesting to contribute in terms of cuisine. So I I like everything. i like uh, to try new things okay karan alawat says what is the speed of light it's roughly 300000 kilometers per second 3 lakh kilometers per second roughly slightly less than that but if you want an approximate answer 3 lakh kilometers per second that is the speed of light okay kinchuk says can you please tell why india is not making the asian sato ato asian treaty organization like nato to counter china with asian countries which is really threatened by china in order to create such a confederation or alliance you need to be really powerful really powerful and you need to be other countries will come into such an anti china organization only if they are confident that you will be able to protect them against anything that that china does to them today india is not in a position to offer that sort of um immunity to other countries in case china does some kind of harm to them so for india to be able to create an organization like this india will first have to become a major asian power india is already a major asian power but a genuine hard power 
like able to stand up to china economically and militarily as an equal right now india is not an equal so it will happen maybe in the future as of today india is not powerful enough to do that all right where are we what else do we have um can china stop ganga and brahmaputra river water i think the ganga originates somewhere in the himalayas or not in chinese occupied territory most likely and the brahmaputra for sure comes from tibet which is occupied by china the thing is this uh, let's take a look at the map where's the map i have to open them in let's take a look at the map of india and and see what the brahmaputra river is like so let's open the satellite imagery oh look at that so the brahmaputra comes via arunachal pradesh and comes into assam and goes all the way down that's how it is it originates in tibet but uh, where is that river where is the great river the brahmaputra here it is as you can see the majority of this river originates in the forests of arunachal pradesh if you go north it's just a thin trickle so uh, the truth is that more than 80% of the water of the brahmaputra river originates in rainfall that falls in the forested regions of arunachal pradesh so even if china were to cut off all the water to the brahmaputra from tibet the brahmaputra would still not be affected majorly because the majority of the river of this of the water of this river originates in india itself so the chinese even if they try they can't do much about this and the ganga i think it, it does not originate in chinese occupied territory which means we are fine so don't worry too much about that karan says what are quark stars so quark stars quark stars are stars that are hypothetical stars that are, that are made up of this exotic matter called quark matter so when you compress uh, you, you have, we have these stars called neutron stars which are giant atomic nuclei about 10 kilometers or so in diameter and they are mainly made up of neutrons only now if you compress such a star even further then you would have a quark matter forming in the interior of the star so in which case that the quarks will no longer be confined and they will be free to move around in this big soup of quarks so that's a hypothetical form of matter it's never been observed and maybe some of the stars we consider to be neutron stars may actually be quark stars on the interior having a shell of neutron matter on the exterior so that's a hypothetical kind of star it's never been really observed that's a quark star made of quarks a a, a sea of deconfined quarks in the inside okay captain stark says what are mahajanapadas they don't exist anymore they were the great republics of india i think there were 14 of them was it 14 uh yeah a number of independent republics mahajanapadas in ancient india uh they were democratic republics so that in brief is what the mahajanapadas were uh and uh, this era came to an end about about roughly 2000 or so years before today all right uh, some other questions let me see am i an alien no i, I don't know maybe um 
what's going on in myanmar it's hard to tell it's a closed off country uh it's again ruled by the military it's been ruled by the military for many decades maybe there's some chinese interference there now so we don't quite know what's happening there and there is very little government to government connection now between india and myanmar of course we have a significant land border with myanmar if you look here where's the border as you can see mizoram manipur nagaland and arunachal pradesh have a shared border with myanmar but that's a very extensive border and yet we have very little people to people connection there must be some local connection over there in the northeastern part of india the far east of india especially a variety of tribes that don't quite recognize the boundaries which is fine but we don't know what's happening politically there the army the, the military junta is in power but they are very secretive so it's quite opaque what's happening there the situation is opaque okay um what got you interested in history just curiosity i was always curious about about the world and uh, i found history to be to some extent even more interesting than fiction reading fiction or re- reading novels so i was interested in that from a very young age right um what was the fate of indians who were sold to slavery by the turks well that's never been studied by our by our historians but you can guess because lots of people in central asia in the various arabic countries in yemen for instance lots of india or lots of people look like indians why is that why is that so obviously the indians who were sold into slavery many of most of them were women and children so i think it's not hard to guess what happened to them all right let's take a couple more questions what is best for india a pakistan that is constantly in civil war or a pakistan that is divided into different nations a pakistan that is divided into nations sindh balochistan pashtunistan maybe maybe separate punjab i think that is better for 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 everybody even from the for the pakistani people right now they are ruled by this army this tyrannical undemocratic force called the pakistani army and the pakistani army is a mercenary force they are, they don't care about the country they don't care about the people whom who they supposed to serve they only care about enriching themselves all their children live abroad they have big bank accounts in london mostly they have big palatial homes in other countries and they have been serving whatever master was has been willing to pay them money in the past it was the us that did that for the longest time now it is china maybe now they they want to go back to the us so the army does not serve pakistan the army serves themselves and it is best for the people of pakistan if the army is to be dismantled and each of these provinces sindh balochistan punjab pashtunistan etc they either rule themselves independently or maybe pashtunistan can go back to being part of afghanistan if they so wish so that is best for india because the terrorism that india has suffered for from for so many decades it has come from the pakistani army and that terrorism has affected the people of pakistan as well 
so the root cause of all the problems is the pakistani army it has to be dismantled hopefully soon right um any other interesting questions harshiraj singh jala says what's your take on the previous pers banned against royal supreme court judgment in favor I'm not quite sure about that i think the indian government banned the previous purses to the uh, that were given to the royal so i think the agreement was that the 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 various so called princely states who were essentially puppets of the british they they agreed to become part of india in exchange for retaining some sort of privileges and getting some sort of money the privy purse from the government of india and then it was taken away from them against the in in breach of the agreement and was there a supreme court judgment in its favor i'm not quite sure i haven't looked into this so that's what i know that's the little i know about this i'm sorry i cannot answer the question in detail because i am not aware of the details maybe in the next in a, in a subsequent episode i will look this up and maybe i can answer that in in better detail in the future but good question very interesting okay let me oh it's already 2 hours 12 minutes let us books to understand geopolitics from scratch i have not studied geopolitics from a single book my understand of understanding of geopolitics comes from my study of history because history is the study of causality and if you study history in depth and from different to the world then you get a very good understanding of what the cause and effect chain is like why do things happen we know things happen things happen all the time but why do they happen why do certain things happen and why do certain things not happen it's all causality and geopolitics is all about causality it's all about the understanding of power national interest and causality so if you study history you understand that so i don't know of any book about geopolitics i am sure there are some textbooks of geopolitics i am sure that terrible so the best way to understand geopolitics is to have a good understanding of of world history okay i live in germany deutschland prices are going up war and indonesia how worse could it guess could it get prices are going to go up and the price rise is permanent unfortunately um germany i mean the whole of europe was getting was getting this cheap energy from russia and now it's not happening the russians are demanding payment in rubles and the various nations that are under the thumb of the us are refusing that and now the energy is drying up the gas is no longer flowing so the governments including in germany are are asking the people to use less energy don't use the heat don't keep the heater on all the time and so on and so forth and when there is a scarcity of energy the prices of all essentials go up this is going to be a long term change it may be a permanent change so that's just how it is this is the cause and effect chain of geopolitics the the causal chain that binds the past to the present to the future so uh, i hope it doesn't get worse and it's going to affect the whole world not just germany not just europe it's going to affect the whole world energy is overall going to get more expensive there's going to be some kind of scarcity of foods food stuffs etc the ukrainian wheat is not going to be available for some time and so on and so forth so there's going to be a big domino effect of the situation in ukraine i hope it doesn't get too bad but things the changes that are that we are seeing here seeing right now 
they are here to stay at least for the time being all right all right um anything else let's see if there is any other interesting question Pre-Markov doctrine. Not sure what that is. Maybe I should look it up. Sounds like an interesting name, the Pre-Markov doctrine. Um, are the mutations in coronavirus stopped? Why is it going away? It's not stopped. <laughs> a virus keeps mutating. And the more a virus mutates, the less dangerous it becomes to its host. So, so the newer mutations are going to keep happening, but it's going to be progressively less dangerous for us. We are the host. Um, the real reason it's not going, it's going away, it seems to be going away, is that because the media is not talking about it anymore. The media has other bigger fish to fry right now, like the Ukraine crisis and other things. When Ukraine becomes, the situation cools down, they will try to bring back that ghastly person, Dr. Fauci or somebody. So... It's there, but it's not going to be a big problem. It, it was it was never a hugely dangerous virus in the first place. Are you Charvaka or Vedantist or anything else? I'm certainly not 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 Charvaka. <laughs> I am not Charvaka for sure. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of today's session. It's one of the longest ones I've done so far. So great session, great questions. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you once again from for for bringing this show, the Ask Abhijit show to episode 100 and we'll just keep going and as you know i have made the announcement i have one month to go for that so wish me luck thank you everybody thank you so much very grateful and i will see you in the next episode episode 101 until then take care good day good night bye